Uh, my name's JD. I get to be the pastor of Christ Church Charlestown, and um, I'm honored that you're here today on a summer Sunday. If it's your hundredth time or your first time, I'm honored you're here. Uh, let me throw some pens up here. Thank you, J- other JD, for leading. I've sat in some meetings this summer, and people have said something about JD, and I thought they were talking about me. And I was like, I'm right here in the room. They were like, JD this, JD that. And I was like, I'm right here. Uh, it turns out they weren't talking about me, and I'm not nearly as important as I like to think I am sometimes. <laughs> if you've got a Bible, turn to, uh, we're going to get to the main Bible verse at the very end of day. So I want you to turn to Exodus 20. And then just kind of dog ear it for a long, long time, and I promise we'll get to it. I'm going to give you some other scriptures, but the main one that I want you to, the other ones we'll throw up on the screen. Uh, Exodus 20 is going to be the main ones that I want you to see today. We're in the middle of a series called Heavy Lifting, where we're talking about difficult areas of discipleship. And the truth of this, is, uh, as we talk through it, one of the main things I want you to hear over and over, I want you to literally be able to have it burned in your heart is that we can do the heavy lifting of discipleship because Jesus has done the heavy lifting of salvation. So we can do hard things as followers of Jesus. We can put sin to death. We can uh, be part of God doing incredible things in this world, and we're able to do those. And and those things don't make God happy. Those don't appease uh, the Lord. But we do those things because Jesus uh, has died for us and risen from the dead. And God is now in Christ happy with us. And so that is extremely liberating. And so before we get going today, I I wanted to make sure that you hear hear that, that God's not going to love you anymore depending on how you perform. Like, that is settled. Uh, That is one of the things that I just always want to keep coming back to in my own life and calling us back to as a church. Now, I want to tell you about some different religions really quickly in the world. The first one I want to tell you about is a religion called Pana Wave. It was formed by a Japanese woman named Yuko Chino in the mid-1980s. Pana Wave is part Buddhism, it's part Christianity, it's part New Age spirituality, and it's part just paranoia. And this sort of world religion, it is, like there are people mostly in the Far East who follow this religion, but here's what they do. The Pana Wave uh, followers have a phobia of electromagnetic waves. I don't know if this is anybody's struggle in here, but if it is and Jesus is not for you, I've got a religion for you today. Uh, the people uh, who follow Pana Wave, the way that they sort of identify themselves, they dress up in white clothes and white masks, and they drive white vans around looking for safe spots uh, where there are no electromagnetic waves. I promise you, this is a real group of people on planet Earth doing this thing, riding around. They predicted, by the way, that the world would end on May 15, 2003. It did not. We're all still here. So uh, before you follow Pana Wave, just understand that there's a fundamental flaw at the beginning. Another one, uh, this one is called Om Bana, or affectionately known as the Bullet Baba. Uh, this is a religion in India. It's a real religion. I'm not kidding. It's the only known religion right now in the world uh, that's based on the people worshiping a vehicle. Uh, the worshipers of Bullet Baba worship a, a, a British bullet motorcycle. Uh, literally, it, there's a shrine for this motorcycle and its owner who died in a crash years ago. It's believed that the bike has mystical powers because it keeps reappearing or it kept reappearing a lot of times post-accident at the site where the accident occurred. 
And so now there is the bike sitting on a pedestal and people come and they put garlands around on it and around it and flowers and they have made it into a temple and there are worshipers who go to the Om Baba, uh, Om Bana site to worship. The third one, this is maybe my favorite religion in the world, I think it's fascinating, is the Iglesia uh, Maradonia, formed in 1998 in Rosario, Argentina, to worship number 10, Diego Maradona. Uh, For all the soccer fans or football fans in the world, you'll remember Maradona was the Argentine soccer player who handballed a goal into uh, the Gulf so that Argentina could win the World Cup in the early 1980s. In reverence to him, uh, people formed a religion to worship number 10, Diego Maradona. There are commandments, there are prayers, there are liturgies. According to them, there are actually 100,000 followers of the Iglesia de uh, Maradonia, and their symbol is this, because he was the number 10. This is their symbol for God, Dios, uh, which is Spanish, obviously for God, but with the number 10 in there. And so that is a religion. There went my marker. Um, but, and I can laugh at those, and a few of you laughed at a couple of those, but here's the truth, like, I can't make fun of them uh, in full. Like, I can't joke about people, like, worshiping their health and buying uh, white vans to try to escape places to get to safe zones. I can't totally mock people worshiping their vehicles and their stuff. I can't totally belittle people who are worshiping their sports stars. It's maddening or enraging or pitiful to think about an actual religion being formed in the name of this stuff. But my heart does this all the time. And I don't just worship one of these things. Like I worship all of these things and a lot more of these things as well. I feel the tension of uh, idolizing, if you will, sports and health and my stuff. But I feel it all at once. My idols... Uh, The things that elbow at God for my heart's affection are many and varied and cannot be simplified down to one thing. It feels like Jesus on my best day sits on a throne, but he's constantly being nudged by other things trying to replace him. I don't know if you feel the weight of that, but I feel that most days from sunup to sundown. I'm thankful that Jesus has done the heavy lifting of salvation and he has eradicated those gods from being my ultimate destiny, but the work of discipleship is me dethroning those gods and letting Jesus sit on his rightful throne. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to be in the middle of a little mini-series within this series where we talk about idols and our heart's idols Um, And it's aimed for all of us. Some Sundays you'll be here and you'll hear me say, now today is aimed at those of you who are Christ followers. And I'll say to the people who aren't Christ followers today, just listen and pray for all of us Christians in the room. And some Sundays, like especially around Easter and Christmas, I'll say today is aimed at the not yet followers of Jesus. So Christians, you probably heard this. I want you to just pray for everybody else today. And we do that a few times a year in particular. Today, we're aiming at all of us because all of us, Christian or not, do have these little gods, these lowercase g gods that vie for our heart's affection. And so I want to read to you several passages in in the New Testament to start um, in the letters to the churches where Paul and uh, John uh, are writing 
uh, about idols and idolatry. And we're going to throw these ones up on the screen um, so you don't have to look them up. But let me just read to you a few of them. The first one I'm going to read to you is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. It's actually the last verse of 1 John. And it's, it's, it's odd if you ever read 1 John because he ends abruptly with this phrase. He says, little children, uh, and he's not talking to kids. He's talking to the, the believers that he is pastoring and writing this letter to, seeing himself as their spiritual father. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Or uh, if, you, if we were reading this and we were Greek scholars, and probably only a couple of you are, and I wouldn't be included in that, the way that it, these would be word pictures, and it would be saying, build fences around yourselves. Build fences around yourselves and guard yourselves. When it says keep yourselves, it's like build a fence, put in a moat, guard yourselves, be vigilant, stand at the watch, keep yourselves from idols. From idols, um, the New Testament writers, when they would use this word, they, they would take a totally different meaning. When when people, when people were writing in ancient Greek and they were talking about this idea of idols, usually they would just be talking about deities. Keep yourselves from deities. But the early Christians uh, did not believe that there were other deities. Jesus wasn't, you know, in the sort of supermarket of ancient gods. Jesus wasn't just on aisle three with the other ancient Near Eastern gods. I and mean, then you would get the gods of Asia Minor. I and mean, then you would get the gods of the Far East. Like, the early Christians did not see it that be, being that way at all. So they would never say, little children, keep yourselves from the other deities. The word that they used instead uh, has roots to the idea of phantoms, ghosts, phantoms. If, 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 and so this is written in the Roman Empire to people living in cities who are spiritual, uh, but they're, urban, they're mostly urban people. And so if they were writing to desert people, the way he would say it is, guard your hearts from mirage deities, from those deities that you chase after thinking they're water, but then you get to them and you find that there's no water. Watch out for those. Keep yourselves from mirage deities. If it were... If you were writing to people who grew up in the 70s and 80s watching Scooby-Doo, like me, he would say, watch out for the, like, ghosts. I remember every episode of Scooby-Doo, you know, they were trying to chase down some ghost, and they get there, and they find it wasn't even a ghost, but, like, they're constantly pursuing it, and they're running from it, so they're running to it and running from it. Uh, John would be writing and say, guard yourselves from, from ghost deities that aren't even real. But the closest thing to it is the idea of phantoms. Guard yourselves from these phantom deities. For the Christian, anything that steals our heart's affection other than Jesus is a phantom deity. And that's what he's saying here. Guard yourselves. They seem worthy, but they're just phantoms. And if we flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here, let me turn to my little tabs here in my Bible. Here's another reference to idols. He says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 14, Paul's writing now, he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idol, idolatry, flee from phantom deities, flee from all of those mirage gods that are no gods at all, run away from these empty non-gods. If you flip over one page, if you're following along in 1 Corinthians 8, kind of in the same thought process, here Paul is talking about whether or not the early Christians could go to a meat market 
and eat meat that was sacrificed on the altar of deities. And Paul is basically saying like, you can't worship phantom gods because they're not gods and you're watering down the faith if you're worshiping idols. But he says, if you go to the market, he's like, what was sacrificed to a God is not your God. Like buy the cheap meat. If the meat is cheaper, get the, get the best cut of meat that you can for whatever. Like it's okay to do that. But he's talking about heart idolatry. And in chapter eight, Verses four through six, he says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. They're phantom deities. And that there is no God but one. And this, my friends, ought to be our heart cry. There's no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords. Verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Run from these phantom deities because they're not even real. There is one living God. And then flipping over to 1 Thessalonians, also by Paul, verses uh, chapter 1, 8 through 10. He says this, when he's addressing the church and how they, the people of Thessalonica, came to Christ. He says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia but, and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so we don't even need to say anything. For they, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from phantom deities to serve the living and true God, from mirage gods to serve the living God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, like I said, we're gonna get to Exodus 20 in just a minute, but let me give you some definitions, if I can, of an idol or a phantom deity today. Number one, anything in my heart and life that becomes more important and more consuming than the Lord is an idol. Anything in my heart that becomes more important, and importance is hard to measure, so we'll talk about more consuming than the Lord. The fact that we would call Jesus Lord, and that is the confession that we're making. We're not just talking about some historical guy when we're talking about following Christ. He was certainly a historical guy. He certainly lived in first century ancient Near East and the Roman Empire. He certainly died on a cross, and his followers certainly believed that he rose from the dead. But we're not just talking about a historical person when we talk about following Christ. We're talking about the Lord Jesus. We're banking our lives on the fact that his death forgives our sin and his resurrection offers us hope that death does not get the final word. And so the fact that we call him Lord means that he is either first or that we have an idol issue. A second definition, if I can. Anything that I think can give me what only God can give me. This is where it starts getting a little more personal, by the way. Anything in my heart that I think can give me what only God can give me. What are the things that I try to buy or hang on to or accumulate or identify me that would give me meaning or joy or peace or hope or security or worth? I can't tell you how many times Nat and I have said, if we can just get X in the bank account, then we will be safe if economic calamity comes. And the truth is, if we have nothing in the bank but have Jesus, we will be safe when economic calamity comes. 
I can't tell you how many times I've thought, as long as my kids are healthy and well, then I will be okay. But my life will come unhinged if something were to happen to them, God forbid. The truth is, if everything around me falls apart, just like Job, if the Lord is with me, I will be okay. And the same can be said for my boys and my wife. Anything I have that can give me what only God can give me. Third definition, anything other than the Lord that makes life worth living would be an idol. Now we're like really beginning to like get the scalpel and root some stuff out. Anything in my life other than the Lord that makes life worth living. How many times have we gone at Valentine's Day and bought a card that says, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. You give my life meaning. Without you, I would be nothing. That's idolatry. Hallmark makes billions of dollars a year doing this, right? Like, and we're not terrible if we bought cards like that, not gonna sing just as I am and you come down and repent if you've bought a card like that. I'm just telling you that only Jesus can provide ultimate meaning for us. I I think about... uh, People saying that their kids are their everything. Nothing but the Lord is meant to be our everything. And no human can carry the weight of being someone else's everything. We, talk, we hear politicians talk about they're going to be our, uh, they're going to re- restore our greatness or provide us hope. They can't do it. It's a false promise. And whenever we believe it, they can We've bought a lie. We think that a job or a cause or uh, something like that is going to give us meaning and it cannot do it. Only the Lord can truly make life worth living. Anything else is a phantom deity. You will work your way towards it and you will get to it and find that it has gone just a little further or it is like smoke that you try to grab at. Noah and Owen are smoke. I will, if they're gonna provide Natalie and I meaning in life, smoke we will never grab. We'll never grab at it. If pastoring you, if ministry becomes my idol, and man, after 25 years in ministry, I've seen a lot of friends who had, that did happen for them. And they were wildly successful by ministry standards and got to the success, and it was a phantom deity. And I've watched my like, brothers in ministry, and this is like a cautionary tale to me. I've had friends who've, taken their lives because they got to that and found it wasn't enough. They've self-destructed themselves financially or with their family, with their integrity, because they reached for a ministry, like they reached for ministry thinking it was gonna give them meaning in life and they got there and it was smoke. It It was water that just always kept being just a little bit further out, a fourth definition any good thing, any created thing that becomes an ultimate thing and dethrones the creator as an idol in my life. Any good thing, any created thing that becomes an ultimate thing. Anything that I can touch that, that is temporal cannot be ultimate and untouchable and give meaning. Those things dethrone the creator. Here's a quote, uh, Hope, if you throw up that next slide for me from Timothy Keller. We think that idols are bad things, but that's almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. We're not worshiping 
motorcycles that were crashed. We're not worshiping Argentinian soccer players. We're not worshiping freedom from electromagnetic waves. Those sound ridiculous. It's the good things that are the danger. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. We have to guard against those things. There are three types of idols or phantom deities. I want to share them with you really quickly. Uh, and this will guide us for the next couple of weeks. One, there are fruit idols. There are fruit idols. These are the tangible little idols in our lives. Uh, this might be a big house. It might be a trophy. It might be a family. It might be a promotion. It might be an addiction that we have to something that nobody else sees. It's real. It's tangible. Just no one else sees it. And unless we're really known, no one else may even know it's there. But it's fruit. There's fruit of it in our life. We can look and say, oh, I got this thing. I wanted this thing. I've got this habit. It's tangible. These are fruit idols, okay? The second type of idols are root idols. These are intangible. These are a little deeper. These tend to be our isms, perfectionism, workaholism, materialism, individualism, narcissism. These are the root idols that produce the fruit idols. The thought in my mind, the idolatrous phantom deity thought in my mind that if we had X amount in our bank account, then we would be okay. See, that's the fruit idol. I've got to get money in the bank. It comes from the root idol of we didn't have a lot when I grew up. And so the root idol is a longing for security and a belief that stuff makes you safe. That's the root idol. The macro problem is that none of us are just producing fruit because of the root alone. We also live in an orchard of other trees and we have orchard idols. And these may be neighborhood idols or these may be national idols or these may be the times we live in idols or these may be any one of a number of things, but these are the cultural idols. Idols. These are the worldview. These are hard to see. Individualism in a lot of the parts, other parts of this country is a deep, deep orchard idol. And when you as a Christian, when we as Christians begin to say, oh, we don't live for ourselves. We live for God. We live for Christ. And because we all follow Christ, we're together, we're family. That is deeply countercultural. That's a non-orchard idea. When we begin to say stuff is not enough, Prime Days this week, not gonna lie, I looked this morning, see what I can find on a bargain. Uh, for all the Prime people, it's uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. Like, listen, I can click that. Man, I can, I've got my credit card saved. I can jump in there and buy something. Some of you are already doing it. You're eyeing the early deals. You can do it. I promise you, it's not going to provide meaning. But we live in a culture that has created an internet holiday in the middle of July because we've come to believe as a culture that if we buy stuff at a good deal, it says, A, I'm better than you because I have better, newer stuff. And B, I'm better than you because I got my stuff cheaper than you did. So I was eyeing my air fryer this morning that I may get for bank. Like we may be having air fried French fries by the end of the week. I don't know. This is, this is an orchard issue. This can be an orchard issue. We buy appliances we don't have room for in our little house because we've been taught, oh, everybody's got an air fryer. How do you not have your air fryer? Orchard idols. I wanna show you how God, how this kind of plays out cosmically if I can. Hopefully you'll be able to see it. 
God has a best for every single person and every single thing. God has a best for every single person, every single thing. He has a best for my finances. He has a best for my sexuality. He has a best for our family. He has a best for how I steward my mind, my heart, my soul. He has a best for you. He has a best for we. God has a best for our world. God has a best for every single issue. But here's what happens. Thanks to our forefathers, Adam and Eve, who sinned, we live in a world marked by brokenness. We feel that. We feel the brokenness. When you watch the news, we feel the brokenness, right? And what we're feeling is not just the weight of brokenness. What we're feeling is that we're a long ways away from God's best. And here's what we do. We try to trampoline out of our brokenness. If I can just blank, then that will medicate my heart. Anytime we try to trampoline out of our brokenness, that is idolatry. Anytime we try to get at God's best, other than by the means God has given us, we are trying to trampoline out of our brokenness and asking a created thing to be what it was never able to be. So we medicate our brokenness, we hide our brokenness, we escape our brokenness, but they're phantoms. We want to vacation our way out of our brokenness. We want to spend our way out of our brokenness. We want to marry our way out of our brokenness. We want to have perfect kids that we post photos of on Instagram out of our brokenness, but it never gets us there. And we still end up chasing these phantoms going, it's not enough, it's not enough. And here's, here's why. One, idols will always leave us three things. One, they'll always leave us disappointed. Our idols will always leave us disappointed. I think about Tom Brady in the very famous interview in 2005 on 60 Minutes where he had just won his third Super Bowl title and he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? And then he said this, and when you watch it, like I watch it today on YouTube and it guts me. He says, it's gotta be more than this. Tom Brady, married to Giselle, six or seven Super Bowl rings now? There's gotta be more. There's gotta be more than this. Makes me think about this quote from uh, Paul Tripp. Hope, if you'll throw up that next slide for me. Paul Tripp says this, if your hope disappoints you, it's the wrong kind of hope. You see, hope in God never disappoints precisely because it's hope in God. This means that hope placed in any other thing will always end up disappointing us. Second thing that idols will always do to us, they will always leave us deflated. I have a friend uh, named Matt, and Matt spent years working on a PhD in, for ministry. He became Dr. Matt. And all of us as church planters were super impressed because he and his wife had four kids, and his church was successful. But what he wanted so bad was that PhD saying that he was a doctor of ministry and he got it and they had the celebration and they went to the house after all of this happened and he said he was sitting in his recliner looking at this PhD framed and it was all he wanted. He had worked for it for years and he loved it. And then he heard his kids and wife in the kitchen making a sandwich and he said, in that moment, he realized that it was a phantom. And he put it down by the chair and he 
he said, I haven't even moved it in two weeks. I haven't even hung it on the wall. It was a phantom. It was a mirage. It left him deflated, and he just ended up setting it aside. There's a quote uh, from C.S. Lewis. Sorry to read so many quotes to you, but I think these people are way godlier than me, and they have better stuff to say than me. C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity, which is, I think, one of the greatest books ever written, said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and scenery may have been excellent and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. If I can find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The best things will leave us deflated at best. They will lead us deflating. It's like our bubble gets burst. Uh, it's, not even, it's not even quick. Like we've had bike tires that slow leaked and some of our idols will slow leak. But man, if we chase them hard enough and we draw this line all the way out to here, what we find out is they don't slow leak, they blow out and they become really dangerous because we weren't made to live that way. The third thing that idols will do Unchecked, idols will destroy us. Idols are never satisfied. That's why in drug addiction, there's the law of diminishing return. You always have to have more drugs and stronger drugs. And for people in the room who maybe don't struggle with illegal drugs, we hear that and we go, well, pity the drug addicts. Listen, all idols have a law of diminishing return. There's not an amount of money Nat and I are ever going to get in our bank account that we're going to go, we're safe. In fact, the actual opposite is true. If the security is in the money and not Christ, the more we get, the less secure we're going to feel. This is how it works. They destroy us. They ask more. They jump boundaries. They wipe out boundaries. They take us down. They steal the joy of everything else. We watched, uh, Owen and I the other night watched Pirates of the Caribbean. Such a great movie. The CGI is so bad at this point. Like, it's amazing how fast the technology has become irrelevant. But um, I love the scene where Barbosa wants, I uh, can't remember the girl's name, uh, Kira Knightley's character, wants her to eat the apple because he's stolen cursed gold and it has ruined everything else for him. And he can't drink wine and he can't even have the simple pleasure of an apple. It didn't just ruin the gold, it ruined everything. And that's what our idols do to us. They will ruin everything for us. And this is why 
John and Paul and the other writers of the New Testament told us to flee idolatry, to guard against idolatry, to fortify against idolatry. And this is why when he's writing the first Thessalonians, he says, the thing that's the most commendable about your faith and that's spreading throughout the church and the Roman Empire is the fact that when you turn to Christ, you turned away from idolatry. So let me give you three diagnostic questions, if we can. Number one, what gets the best of our money, our time, our thoughts, and our energy? What gets the best of your money, time, thoughts, and energy? Now, let me respond to an objection that you might be feeling. You might say, well, JD, the church isn't open all the time. I can't be at the church all the time. I can't read the Bible all the time. That's making an idol of religion. God didn't intend for you to be at this church building all the time. And God actually didn't intend for you and I to sit around in a closet with a light in it and just read the Bible all the time. So (laughs) there have been times in my life where I was being like cheeky and would respond, well, you can't do that. God's not asking us to make an idol of religion and replace some other idol with the idol of religion. Jesus, though, does want to be all-consuming in our hearts. He wants the best of our money, time, thoughts, energy. Second, I get this quote, finish this sentence. I get the most angry and depressed and provoked when I pray for blank and God says no. That's right. Mm. I get the most angry and provoked and depressed when I pray for blank and God says no. Or when I want blank and can't get it. What rattles your cage and causes you to become the incredible Hulk, just losing your mind? Third diagnostic question, what are the emotions and beliefs under the idols? What are the root idols under the fruit idols? The other day, I, I went deep sea fishing uh, for the first time on, uh, on the Cape and if I never do it again, I'm great. I didn't, I didn't like lose my lunch. So that just felt like the first win. I didn't lose a fishing pole that wasn't mine in the water. Second win and, uh, and third win, like I, I caught a fish. So it was great. Uh, never have to do it again. But the spot we went to down the Cape, we, we left out of, uh, so we were on like, we were right here and we were going out to these sandbars that are right here. Okay, out, off Chatham, going toward uh, Nantucket. And and our, our guide, the guy driving the boat says, I know exactly where the fish are. And so he takes us to a spot and we just throw it out. And as soon as we throw it out, we're reeling them in. So like to act like I caught a fish is kind of a joke. Like he took us where the fish were. He cast the line. Literally, he's like, dude, just reel it in, pull it, start reeling, pull, reel, and, and you, you win. We'll take your photo and you'll look like a fisherman. So we are like, how do you know the fish are here? And this is what he said. He goes, I know the fish are here because I see the waves. And we're in the middle of calm water to our left and our right, but right where we're fishing, there's these waves that look like we're on the beach. And he goes, and I know the waves are here because I know there's a sandbar under the waves. So if I can look on, on, on my, uh, whatever you call it, the topographical thing on the boat that tells you how deep the water is, he's like, then I know there will be waves and then I know there will be fish. If we can begin as God's people to look and say, okay, what are the cultural idols, the orchard idols that then become root idols? Then we can see the fruit idols. And the converse is true as well because God wants us to flee this stuff and root it out of our hearts. If we can look and see where the fish are biting, where the fruit is, then we can begin to identify where the waves are 
where the root is, and then we can look deep down and say, what are the orchard idols? It's really hard to do this. And this isn't just an American problem. Like every culture has its, has its idols and its orchard idols. And every one of us in human history has had our fruit and root idols that we have to surrender to the Lord. And that leads me, so what we have to do, by the way, is we have to be grafted into a new vine. We have to, as God's people, when the Lord saves us, he, he, up, he, he cuts us off of that tree this idolatrous tree, and he grafts us into himself. It's why in John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a person remains or abides in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can't do anything. Once we begin to expose these idols in our hearts and our lives, we have to remember we've been grafted into a new tree. Or if you're not a Christian today and you are going to follow Christ, understands that he wants to cut you off of the out of the orchard you are in, and he wants to graft you into a new tree himself, a new vine. Now, now let's open the Bible to Exodus 20. Now that we're at the end, I promise. Exodus 20, God is giving the Ten Commandments, and he says this. Verse 2, not a commandment, by the way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, First commandment, you shall have no other gods, idols, phantom deities, other deities, other mirage gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven, second commandment, above or if it is in the earth beneath or if it is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing chesed, covenant love, steadfast love, Old Testament grace to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God says, don't have any other phantom deities. Don't worship the deities of the nations of the land that I'm about to send you into. And he says, and while you're at it, don't make any phantom deities of me. It's why, by the way, Christians in the first and second and third century were actually called atheists by the Romans because the Romans had tons of deities. They had sun gods and water gods and death gods and war gods and sex gods and fruit gods and vegetable gods. And they had all the gods you can fathom. And they looked at Christians who were following this commandment as covenant people and they had made no images of God. And they said, well, they don't have any gods. They're atheists. And the truth is, no, they had one living God who was so big and so good that he could not be reduced down to any deity. So the Lord says, no phantom deities before me is the first commandment. The second one, don't try to reduce me, shrink wrap me to some trinket phantom deity. Why? Verse two, because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. I am your God. I wanna tell you today, if you think God is in the past Christian, He's not. He still is. And if you're chasing the wrong belief that if you can just try harder or do more or something like that, or you get this, like, I want to tell you the Lord is today your God. And if you're not a Christian, he will be today your God today. He's your God. He's not 
Jesus didn't die to be Christchurch, Charlestown God or Christianity's God. He died to be your God and rose from the dead to be your God. And he is the Lord. Why do we not need phantom deities? Why do we not need these mirage gods? Because the Lord is better. The Lord is the living God. Jesus is the rescuer. And if you get nothing else today, write this down. Jesus is enough. Jesus is more than enough. He's better than your phantom deity. It's not Jesus alongside other things. God is always better. And that is why, what did I do with my blue marker? Here's the solution. The solution that some of you have seen this before is not that we keep trying to trampoline out of our brokenness. The solution is the gospel. It's the truth that because we couldn't work our way to God, God came down to us and he lived sinlessly and died sacrificially and then rose victoriously and returned to the right hand of God where he is seated today and ruling in authority. And we don't have to trampoline out of our brokenness with idolatry because Jesus is enough. And if we will be repenting and believing people who have repented and believed at one point and given our lives to Christ, and we will remain repenting, believing people, then God allows us to jump into restoration work in this world. God restores our hearts and allows us to be ambassadors of restoration and reconciliation in this world. I'm gonna tell you this, you can exchange phantom deities for the living God. This is the last polo shirt I own. I think I bought this 20 something years ago, probably around 2002. There was a point in my life, I remember one time, it was deeply scarring, where my dad my mom made my dad go buy me a pair of shoes. And he took me to a store and bought me the cheapest pair of shoes there and they tore up within about two weeks. But I had to keep wearing them for a while. Has this ever happened to you? It's kind of funny, kind of also like, kind of scarring, right? So when I got my first ministry job, I would buy a lot of these type of shirts with this particular logo right here. Because in the town where I was living, this logo at that time was the symbol that I was somebody. I had a lot of these. I had lots of long sleeve ones. I had lots of short sleeve ones. I have a pair of pajamas. I've got pullovers. I had t-shirts. When it would come Christmas, this was what I asked for, somebody else to buy me these. Because when I would wear these, and I wore them seven days a week, they said I was somebody. This was the fruit the root was that I had to be somebody and I had to outgrow that kid who had shoes that tore up within a week and I had to show people that I was something. By God's grace, after he moved me on from this church where I wore this and this town and this phase of life, he put me in the middle of some Christians, some true Christ followers who loved me and didn't care one bit what I wore. Second thing that happened is God allowed Natalie and I to make no money for the first three years planting our first church. So these were not even an option anymore. It was like, do I buy one of these or like, you know, a couple of weeks worth of food? And it was like, well, we like to eat. So uh, I stopped buying these. But you know what the third thing that God did? So he didn't just pull away the fruit. He put me in a different orchard with his people. 
And then he began to root out the idols, the idol of having to feel like I could prove myself. He's not fully done with me yet, by the way. There's the little shirts with the whales that I really like those. I saw a couple of you wearing those today. Like, I still like those. Yeah, I saw one there. I saw another one over there. I love those. I can buy those today, and they don't say a thing about me. But it used to be there was a time in my life where that said more about me than what Jesus had done in my life. And the Lord has freed me from that. Because when we walk away from our idols, understanding their phantom deities, and we turn to Jesus, we find that he is enough. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you, but you loved us first. (laughs) And God, I wanna love you good, but you love me better. And I don't have to chase phantom deities and I don't have to shrink wrap you down to some fake little false trinket, God. You are big enough, you are better, you are enough. So Lord, I pray today that you've exposed, uh, and you've, you've exposed, you're beginning to expose our idols and they are many and deep in our hearts. Lord, as, 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 as your Holy Spirit, for the Christians in the room, as your Holy Spirit lays them before us, God, I, I thank you for the truth of Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I pray that as they're laid before us, we would not feel condemned. But Lord, I I do pray that we would feel contrite and repentant and ready to turn. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here in the victory that is ours in Christ. I pray that we would be a repenting, believing people who are joining you in restoration work in this world. Lord, I pray for anyone in the room who's never given their lives to you. And maybe they're trying to trampoline out of their brokenness and they wouldn't call it idolatry. They would call it maybe other things, being a good person, being religious, living a good life. God, help them see that there is no destination in that that is anywhere they want to end up. And Lord, I pray that they would repent and believe and receive Christ and receive the gospel today. I pray that from the quietness of their hearts, they would even say, God, turning away from my idols today, trusting in you, Jesus. Will you save me and will you be enough? I thank you, God, that we can do the heavy lifting of discipleship because you've done the heavy lifting of salvation. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.